to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 176, where we're going to zoom in on the labor movement in New York with a conversation with some very special friends of the show. But first, the news. It is shareholder meeting season, and I've been thinking a lot this year about the question of shareholder power, how often workers are sold out in order to juice stock prices. This is possibly the story behind the closing of the Lordstown GM plant, where I was recently for a soon-to-be-printed story, and how a change in the way companies are owned, democratically by the workers, is necessary for us to really change the way power is distributed in society. Shareholder meeting season is also a time when workers have taken to protesting, exercising what little power they do have through employee stock ownership plans, which are designed mostly to give workers a financial stake in the share price of the company so that they welcome changes that are good for shareholders rather than any real power. They can do that in order to raise some hell and raise their concerns. The Walmart shareholders meeting is something that longtime belabored listeners have heard a lot about, from Josh's visit in 2014 and mine the year after, where we joined our Walmart members who held actions outside and raised shareholder resolutions inside, confronting Walmart executives on the convention floor. It's a weird giant party. When I went, Reese Witherspoon hosted and Ricky Martin, Mariah Carey, and Rod Stewart all performed but it has very little actual power behind it, since the Walton family and their top executives hold a controlling interest in the company. Nothing gets decided by the shareholders, even as the company brings in workers to show them a good time and make them feel like part of the Walton family. As our Walmart member Ray Scott told me at the time, they do make a family. We are not part of their family, but they do make a family. So this year, Bernie Sanders is going to lend some firepower to the Walmart workers' cause as members of what is now United for Respect, the organization formerly known as Our Walmart, which is expanded to include other retail workers, including those at Toys R Us. Walmart worker Kat Davis filed a resolution to be heard and voted on at the meeting, calling for worker representation on Walmart's board. What would worker representation on the board mean, considering that when I attended the meeting, there was a grand ceremony passing the board chairship from Rob Walton to his son-in-law? And Walmart has long made much of its employee stock ownership plan, yet as Walmart workers repeatedly told me, their stock doesn't amount to much. It's worth thinking of this, though, as a step towards workers really taking power. It's a time for considering what that would look like, and seeing as a presidential frontrunner, yes, Bernie Sanders is near the top in both fundraising totals and polling, is joining those workers. It's a nice little reminder that maybe come January 2021, things might look a whole lot different for the Walton family and their company. The New York Times recently uncovered a massive fraud that went on for years in plain view of the city's top regulators. In fact, it happened with their blessing. The taxi industry has been conning drivers into predatory loans that have left many totally broke and drowning in debt for years. The scam targeted drivers who would sink their life savings into purchasing their own official cab with a medallion. But after the battering of the recession, unprecedented competition from rideshare drivers, and a downward spiral of financial ruin, the taxi medallion that crowns a select tier of traditional cabs has gone from a blessing to a curse. Since then, we've seen a spate of driver suicides over the past year, and the taxi industry has also faced an even more painful blow from the onslaught of Uber's breakneck expansion. The Times reports, quote, Much of the devastation can be traced to a handful of powerful industry leaders who steadily and artificially drove up the price of taxi medallions, creating a bubble that eventually burst. Sound familiar? Over more than a decade, they channeled thousands of drivers into reckless loans and extracted hundreds of millions of dollars before the market collapsed, unquote. 
So the medallion, these special badges that are issued only to a limited number of certified drivers, were basically wrapped up in a spiral of wild speculation, fueled by easy credit, often from big banks. And the medallion market price jumped from about 200000 per medallion to more than $1 million within a decade. After the crash, according to the Times analysis, more than 950 medallion owners have filed for bankruptcy. Uber and Lyft have only accelerated this collapse, of course. Not only do they compete on the same streets or business, but they actually directly undercut taxi driver wages. And now that drivers have gotten stuck with usurious loans, the de Blasio administration, which largely looked the other way while drivers were sinking into financial ruin, has looked away once again and refused to bail them out. Good thing he's got his own bus for the presidential campaign trail. Some of these shareholder meetings have already happened, and in Dublin, California, where the Ross Stores Company had its meeting, workers with the Garment Worker Center in Los Angeles arrived to challenge the company over its sweatshop conditions in which they produce clothes for Ross. I spoke with Mar Martinez of the Garment Worker Center about what went down at the meeting. We've been doing this campaign for three years to try to recover wages that garment workers earned while producing Ross. And so I went into the annual shareholder meeting uh, to ask Barbara Rantler and the rest of the shareholders uh, why they haven't met with workers to try to resolve this issue. Uh, why they And we're specifically asking Ross to go ahead and take responsibility for the over 800000 that's owed to these workers after having produced Ross clothing. So I went into the shareholder meeting and immediately was treated very differently than any other of their shareholders. They put me in a separate room, had security personnel um, escorting me around, making sure that I wasn't interacting with any of the other shareholders, didn't allow me to be in the whole meeting, only told me that I could make a comment for two minutes. But, you know, when I finally was able to go inside and make the comment, as soon as I started talking about the workers and the sweatshops and raw store supply chain, they took the mic away from me and uh, started trying to speak over me. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had to raise my voice. And then they had security guards kind of uh, surrounding me so that nobody could see me. But it was uh, everybody was kind of staring, wanting to hear what I had to say, but they didn't really allow me to, to finish what my statement was going to be. But overall, uh, made the point to shareholders that, you know, there there are sweatshops in the supply chain and there is money owed to workers that produce to, uh, their clothing that haven't been able to recover their stolen wages. Yeah, so tell us about that money that's owed. What's the specifics of the wage theft that's going on there? We have four workers that uh, are owed over 800000 in stolen wages. And they were producing clothing for Ross at a factory here in L.A. called Sam's Fashion. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Labor investigated this factory and, and 13 other factories that were producing Ross clothing. And all of them were, you know, terrible conditions. And workers were being paid an average of 4 or $5 an hour Ooh. because of the piece rates. And so, uh, you know, workers filed their claims, but... The factories actually shut down. Um, The employers were disappeared. Even the manufacturer, who was the Ross manufacturer in Los Angeles for five years, they also shut down and didn't pay any money to workers. 
So, uh, you know, the Department of Labor report also showed that uh, it was the, the amount that Ross was actually paying for these garments was just simply not enough mm-hmm. to ensure the minimum wage to workers. So it's uh, how Ross is directly linked to this is that their demands for cheap clothing is what created uh, the sub-minimum wage for garment workers. Um, They they were consistently underfunding orders, uh, their contracts with uh, their contractors here in Los Angeles. Uh, so that it's not even a possibility for workers to receive the minimum wage. So now that they are owed this money and all of this has been discovered, Ross is trying to say, oh, we have no control over the conditions in these contractor factories, but uh, absolutely the control comes from their demands uh, for you know clothing that is made really cheaply, mm-hmm. which is why workers are not you know, being insured basic labor rights. Talk a little bit more about the this sort of subcontracting. Our listeners are probably familiar with the way this works with garment factories overseas, but maybe not aware of how many of those are still happening right here in the U.S. Subcontracting is a tactic, I think, that a lot of com- corporations use to avoid liability, to pass on liability to, you know, different levels in their supply chain, uh, but and, and to kind of mask the role that these big corporations play in in the wages and conditions of workers at factories and where they're actually producing garments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what also tends to happen is that um, when there is wage theft, when these issues are discovered, when workers are raising their voices, the way that they get away with it is by shutting down, closing shop, uh, what we call cutting and running from the issue and leaving workers with no avenue to collect or resolve their issues. They're, you know, knocking on doors of factories that are empty within like a week of an investigation, within a month of filing uh, their wage claim. Um, they're knocking on doors that, you know, have no nobody be, uh, that's going to answer them because mm-hmm. they've gone into the habit of shutting down and disappearing and reopening somewhere, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's really how subcontracting this work out it ensures that like the retailers will be protected from workers being coming and knocking at their doors. Yeah. So we've kind of defied that and said, no, we know who is directly responsible for these conditions. We know it's the retailers yeah. that are really responsible for for the conditions that we're seeing here in Los Angeles uh, garment shops. What are the next steps in this campaign and where can people find out more about it? We have a website under at garmentworkerscenter.org. You can go ahead and and look at the Ross Exploits page, which will give you all the details and how to sign our petition. Right now, we are asking folks to um, send letters to shareholders. We have a petition up, a letter petition, where you can write your own message and just click send after you put your you know email information it's a really quick and easy way to support us because right now we know that you know the issue has just really been between these workers and the executives at Ross and the lawyers at Ross but what we think is that if the shareholders really know what's going on if the people that are investing in Ross really know what's going on those are the people that those executives um, are going to listen to and we need to pressure them to go ahead and, and say this is an issue we need to resolve it Ross has a moral obligation uh, to resolve this issue with workers because uh, even if they can say that they didn't know or you know 
a million lies that I think that they're telling us about why they aren't responsible. Even if all of that is true, they still have a moral and ethical obligation just to these workers to resolve the issue and to recognize and try to eliminate sweatshops from their supply chain. That was Mar Martinez of the Garment Worker Center in Los Angeles. McDonald's customers get a choice about whether they want fries at their order. McDonald's workers, though, don't get a choice about whether their job comes with unwanted gropes and racial slurs. In Brazil, workers are taking McDonald's to task over claims of systemic sexual and racial harassment, which have triggered an official labor prosecutor investigation. Legal action could soon follow, and all of this comes in the wake of a parallel challenge to the Golden Arches here in the U.S. This week, the American Civil Liberties Union and Fight for 15 announced they were filing 23 new complaints against McDonald's alleging sexual harassment, gender-based discrimination, and retaliation for whistleblowing. Most of these cases were sent to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and there are also five separate civil rights lawsuits pending. According to the New York Times, this is the third and largest round of equal employment opportunity complaints that workers have filed against McDonald's in the last three years. One woman interviewed for the New York Times, Brittany Hoyos of Arizona, recalled being routinely harassed as a 16-year-old by her boss until she was fired for rejecting his advances. One of the Brazilian workers got fired after he stood up to a boss who had hurled a racial epithet at him. Another claimed that her managers had groped her and followed her into the bathroom. All in all, these cases speak to a hemispheric pattern of oppression and impunity. And it happens across all McDonald's branches, which contrasts with the corporation's claim that it simply isn't responsible for what goes on among individual franchise outlets because they're not technically employing those workers. Advocates, though, say that McDonald's controls the conditions at its stores despite not being the direct employer. So it's not just a matter of a few bad apples under McDonald's watch. The entire fast food business model is rotten to its core. At a recent talk at the Sterling Foundation, I moderated a discussion with three activists about what it means to organize in a changing economy. In addition to reflecting on the future of work, we talked about how the labor movement can evolve to become more inclusive, powerful, and responsive to the needs of diverse working-class communities. The guests in order were Barevi Desai, a friend of the podcast. She co-founded the New York Taxi Workers Alliance way back in 1996. And it is now a 21,000-member strong union for yellow cab, green car, and black car drivers across the city. It includes drivers for Uber and Lyft. New York Taxi Workers Alliance also led the recent citywide rideshare driver strike, as well as the strike against the Muslim ban back in 2017. Beiravi is also the first Asian-American voted onto the AFL-CIO Executive Council. In total, since November 2017 to now, there have been nine drivers that have committed suicide. And as you can see, it's, it's across the industry, right? And so it's, it's been a race to the bottom. And we saw it coming, particularly in 2015, when at the time we fought for a limited cap on the number of vehicles. Long story short, Uber spent, Uber alone spent $10 million in mainly attack ads against the, gov- against the mayor. Um, I wish it had been against the governor, um, against the mayor, um, you know, who had been, you know, worked with us to, to champion the bill. The governor is the one who came in while the mayor was out of town. The governor came in and said, 
Well, now I wouldn't, you know, like I wouldn't put a cap on them. Like they should, they should be allowed to grow. You know, they're creating jobs. Um, it turned out that in 2016, Uber and Lyft spent more on lobbyists than Amazon, Walmart, and Microsoft combined. Right? They go into town where they buy out every single firm and every individual lobbyist. In over 40 states across the country, they've managed to exempt themselves explicitly out of local taxi regulations. So it'll, literally the statute will say, right, for example, that um, you know, taxis have to abide by you know, 24-7 insurance coverage. And so the laws were rewritten to say, um, taxis will have to abide by this, except if the vehicle transporting passengers is, has been dispatched by a transportation network company. And a transportation network company would be defined as basically, you know, a, a company um, that dispatches fares, you know, um, using um, technology, right? And so even in fighting, for example, whether it's fighting taxi regulations or labor law or even Americans with Disabilities, a landmark civil rights transportation law, the companies have all looked to redefine themselves as merely technology companies. The challenge is fighting a business model that is so well financed and is so politically astute. They go into Republican-held states and hire every Republican in sight and use Republican talking points. You know, they came into New York City using, you know, basically progressive lingo, right? Um, they don't talk the same way when they're in parts of upstate New York. But everywhere they go, they've touted the, the notion that they're offering jobs. That's only when they're lobbying. Once they get their way, they make it clear that even if a driver had a fare for every single hour, you, they still would earn below the minimum wage. And as driver organizing has increased, they've gone from telling us, you know, that these are not jobs to this is at least not full time to this is not part time to oh this is only a couple of hours a month mm -hmm. right and so they keep lowering the expectation of exactly what this is and meanwhile there are tens of thousands of drivers in New York City alone that have de depended on these jobs for a full time profession and have entered into $90,000 vehicle financing contracts um, to pay for the job and of course, all of this is nothing about, I mean, the, the massive level of, you know, <clears throat> debt and poverty that you see, particularly in the yellow cab sector, which has been the highest regulated um, and has incurred the most expenses, mainly due to the medallion, but also because of the vehicle. You know, um, their, their vehicle standards, I know so many members who used to drive yellow when the car was retired, because after five to seven years, even if you've never had an accident, even if for three years a car was in the garage because you were sick or out of the country, after a certain amount of time, the car has to be retired. I know so many members who've, gone, who've you know, um, taken those expired yellow cabs, gone straight to work for Uber and Lyft and continued right, to pick up fares. And so, um, 
to the to the insurance requirements. I mean, for yellow cabs, if the if the shade of if the shade of yellow is not does not meet this yellow standard of the Taxi and Limousine Commission, you will fail the inspection. And so you'll be out of work until you get that car repainted, right? And I'm not, like, there are a number of cars that actually fail just for that reason alone. And when you don't pass, you're out of work, you're paying for your expense out of pocket, right? Expenses at average about $130 to $150 a day in order for you to break even. Um, to the point, you know, the fact that there is a taxi unit in the NYPD, I don't know of any other workforce that exclusively has a unit in the NYPD that's existed for years, has never investigated crimes against drivers, um, but only issues summonses against drivers. So the, we were already, right, having to organize such, you know, a, you know deep-rooted exploitation had made progress on many levels, particularly on the economic and the industry side, and then all that really got uprooted. So, um, but I, I wanna end by saying something really quickly about the labor movement. If I gave the same talk four years ago, which I did, you know, and, and you know, we rang the alarm, <clears throat> whether it was in political halls at public hearings talking about the fact that, you know, I remember in 2017 testifying that I, you know, we were getting calls from drivers who were feeling suicidal. You know, it all fell on the ears of people who just didn't give a damn, right? And, um, you know, even in labor meetings, people didn't want to hear it. They wanted to believe that Uber was going to bring a new way of work. Everything old is just new again. You know, you it's not, it's fun, you know, we had posters at all our demonstrations that said, it's not the app, it's the business model, mm -hmm. right? It's not the technology, it's the business model. And I remember um, before then, black car drivers would get dispatched off the di of the dashboard, and then the beepers came in, and drivers loved it because they're like, "Oh, I can, you know, I can go for a bathroom break, I can go for a snack. It's got my beeper on me, and so you know, it'll beep. I, I know I'm, I'm next in line for a fare." That didn't change the fundamental relationship between the boss that was still directly dispatching you, deciding how much money you were going to make. Even if you decided what hour you were going to start your shift, the boss's ability to control your economics still dictated when you were going to end your shift. Nothing changed when we went from the beeper to you know a smartphone. Right? The fundamental business relationship remained the same. And if anything, because the corporations that changed the technology were not functioning as vendors, but instead were functioning as direct employers, while they you know, misclassified the workers as independent contractors, but, um, and while they were you know, massively funded <coughs> by Wall Street, it made, it's made the fight so much you know, bigger and more difficult. And I think that um, you know, it's really important for us as a labor movement to change the language by which we talk about economy, you know, the economy and like 
economic exploitation and and um, you know oppression, right? Where it shouldn't be about the product, the nature of what that company does. It's fundamentally be has to be about the relationship between that corporation and labor, and, and most importantly, it has to be about the economic reality. You know, it can't be about you know flexible scheduling and you know um, the flexibility in scheduling. I mean, you know, capital reinvents itself. Right, more often than pop stars, right? Mm -hmm. It's constantly reinventing itself in order to basically evade laws which catch up to that exploitation or to evade you know union contracts which catch up to it. And so I think it's important for for us to actually use really basic terms like you know poverty. Like when I think of economic mobility, right, I think about poverty. You know, um, you know, I think it's important for us to use words like hunger and starvation, right? And debt, you know, um, you know, words that I think really speak to uh, the masses of poor people. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the economic reality of higher earning workers. Right, I'm, I'm thinking of um, you know worker centers like NMAS, right? National Mobilization Against Sweatshops, which which um, also you know has been around for like 25 plus years, and would talk about the sweatshop culture also affecting higher earning white collar workers. Um, I think you know, but but I think overall our language has to be class conscious. If you talk about the issues of poor people, if you start there then that will cover the issues of you know, the broadest group of workers. But I think it's important that in our language, you know, in our messaging and in our demands, and, and particularly in our analysis of, of the economy and economic exploitation, that we don't seek a middle ground, but that we really start at the bottom where people are at you know, in order to change a society where, where people, you know, where all people equally can really build up. Bianca Cunningham is a former Verizon wireless worker who led her co-workers in seven stores across Brooklyn to join Communication Workers of America in 2014. That made them the first unionized retail workers in the company. She joined the bargaining team and led her co-workers in their first ever Verizon wireless strike, which lasted 49 days. And then she was fired for her activity and went on to be an organizer for CWA. And now she works for Labor Notes as a staff organizer, training union members on issues of racial and economic justice. She's also co-chair of New York City Democratic Socialists of America and a co-founder of the Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus. Here, she's talking about some of the internal negotiations that went on in the days leading up to the first strike and the contract, and talking about some of the tensions that came through in those initial union discussions. What we were making the case for it was kind of like a wage table um, to say that if you had been brought in a, a certain amount, you know, had a, a certain level of years of experience, automatically you should at least be at target pay. Because what we found is like, I think the target pay for um, compensation based salary at that time was like 32. So it's like what they had allotted for the job. But many of the workers in Brooklyn had been there 
well over five years and we're making under the target pay. And so how does this happen? Because of these arbitrary types of ways they give raises, et cetera. And so they're not even spending what they intended to spend on a lot of these positions. And so, you know, we were asking for things like that. Um, you know, if you've been here for six years, you automatically get to be at target pay. Um, they said no to that and then implemented it three months later across mm -hmm. the standard and then said, the only people that don't have this are the union workers, and we were actually the ones that had asked for it in, in the first place. It was also just like, a, uh, I would just say, like as a woman of color, like three of us, uh, three black women on the organizing committee with two white guys as union, you know, they were like the union bulldogs or whatever, and the people who go, like the experts. And then you sit around across from the company, and it's like, this. they had hired this, like Hertz's, was at the time like one of the ten worst companies to work for. They hired that um, person, <laughs> the person that did like labor relations for them, mm -hmm. to come and fight us um, across the table. He was a Trump supporter from Colorado, just an asshole to be quite honest. But he would say stuff like, "You people should be happy to make the money that you make. Um, you don't have any education. Uh, most workers would die to have benefits like this." Um, and it was really racialized, I would say, in hindsight, to the fact that like. We didn't feel like, how can I say this the right way? We felt like we were grateful for the union folks that were there obviously fighting for us, but we also felt like in a lot of ways that like we had to depend like on a white man to do this work because like we weren't in some ways qualified or even like able to really negotiate on that level um, because of, I think because of expertise, but also just because of the way that they dealt with one another. It's almost mm -hmm. like you're in the house. It's like the dynamic. It's like they are in the club and you're not. Um, and that was really internalized by a lot, you know, the other members of the bargaining team. And I don't want to talk bad about the union because I think that they did a job, but I think it's a larger question to ask about, like, you know, our locals mostly ran by, like, you know, these older Italian and Polish white guys who like have this like really militant, you know, labor history and like, you know, can do the MFs and the, you know, cuss them out, you know, upwards and downwards and it sounds really entertaining and it's like, you know, they, they have the experience and they have the notches on their belt, but it is really different whenever they're running the show and you're running and you're, and you're representing like mostly workers of color. It's a question of like, how can we make sure that our voices are heard and reflected in this conversation and that we just don't get lost. Like, we don't need you to save us. We're trying, we, we did this work. Like, we can, we know what we want. You know, we know how to do this job. We know, um, you know, more so than you do. It's like, how can you, how can we not get lost in this? It's like, you're just representing us and how can we like really empower ourselves to like represent ourselves? And I see that dynamic a lot, like in the labor movement, just side note, like most uh, unions, even if they represent mostly workers of color, like you know, postal workers or transit workers, et cetera, are all like white men at the top. And I think that's something that we really need to look at because it's over. Like, like the gig is up. Like they've got to get out of the way and really, I mean, I think that, and like I think CWA is as progressive as a union goes. Like the leadership is super progressive. They talk about like building black women leadership all the time, but it doesn't quite reflect in their hiring practices and the, in the, in the in the offices of the unions, and it doesn't. It, it it seems like it's this model where we could put black women in front of the camera. They're really great. We can ask you to turn out so we can get some really good pictures for our membership, and we can ask you to speak. But when it comes to actually making decisions that affect like the types of contracts and like 
uh, conditions that we're bargaining over, it's like we're iced out of the situation. We're not somehow uh, equipped for that. And so, I mean, I think that's something else uh, to just dig into. Okay, so we bargained for a year and a half. Even sometimes we like ask for a penny and they said no. Um, and so one of the things that they had said when we first were organizing was that you would never strike. The company's gonna tell you you're gonna strike. You're never gonna strike for a first contract. That's so stupid. You have no idea, you have nothing on the table to like to go from. So like, why would you strike? It's just like, that's just crazy. Like that, that would never happen. Uh, a year and a half later, they were, we were getting nowhere. And they said, you know what? I think, you know, the landline contractor, your big brothers and sisters in landline, 40,000 strong, their contract is about to be up. It looks like they're going to head towards a strike. It might, we might be able to use the leverage of the larger company to get a contract for you all. Totally made sense to us. What's it going to take? Are you going to just use your leverage, like you say, or what, what do we have to do? First, it was like, we're going to use our leverage and we're going to demand uh, a contract for you at the table because, you know, it's in our interest. You know, those jobs are disappearing and our sector is the one that's growing and making the most money. Um, and so it turned from that to them coming back and saying, the members just think that you should have an exercise in fighting for yourself. So how about we do a three-day strike? Um, a three-day strike. Uh, would be great. Um, it would. It would. You would be able to exercise your power. You're fighting. You know. You're taking agency over the, the. You know. The issues and the situation. Blah blah blah. So we went back and we said. I know we said that we would never strike for a curse contract, but it looks like we're going to strike for three days, y'all. The we had a meeting. People said this makes sense. Like fine, let's strike for three days. We took a strike authorization vote, which means that all the members come together and then they vote. What was discussed in that meeting was a three-day strike. Uh, we passed it by like 96%. So overwhelmingly, people were down to do a three-day strike. <sighs> so around February, they came back to me and said, you know what, Bianca, I know we said three-day strike, but you know the members, it's just not fair to them. They're going to go on an open-ended strike, and they, and they just can't really fathom uh, a world where you all aren't taking the same risk as them. Now, mind you, they're protecting things that they already have. Their contract is about this thick. They've been fighting you know, for years, and so they know what they're defending. They know what they're fighting for. It's very clear you know, what they will get. For us, we have nothing. We have no tentative agreements. We have no, I mean, it's just like, what could we get you know, from open-ended strike? Can't do it. You have to do an open-ended strike. I had to go back to the workers and say, and they made me a liar twice. I know I said three-day strike. Um, now I'm talking about open-ended strike. People were just like, no. Like, at that point, the trust was so broken. We were calling it the miscommunication workers of America because it was just like, what is the truth here? And, and, and people wanted to know, like, I'm here for it if you really have a plan and there's like a clear path, but all this like up and down, we, we meant to say this, we, you know? And it's like, also like, where is the solidarity? Like, are they really here to fight for us? Like, what is this really about, you know? And so people really started to doubt, like whether the union was a good idea, whether it's something that could really truly serve you know the issues and like address the issues that we you know cared most about and also this idea of solidarity between people who have this really strong uh, contract language and other folks who are just trying to get a foot in the door uh, we ultimately got like 40 percent of the members to agree to do an open-ended strike i want to talk a little bit about picket line culture i know that y'all didn't ask me about that but um right away we saw it was really difficult first of all because landline workers are outside of stores 
these are not their managers, these are not their coworkers. It's really easy for you to yell outside and be really belligerent and, and do a picket line when it's not your people. This is the first time that people inside the store were outside of the store facing the people that they work with every day, in some cases godmothers of their children that decided not to strike and the other folks are outside. You had spouses, some couples, a husband was outside, a wife was inside. I mean, it was really divisive, and there was almost no um, consideration for like those really sensitive dynamics of, you know, this is like where I have to return to after the strike is over. So it's nice that you throw things and cuss people out and do whatever. I'm going to have to re-enter this location at some point in time. So people felt really alienated, I think, that we're coming from the stores. Another thing is that these picket lines tend to be, I mean, I know that like I love strikes as much as the next person, but I think they tend to be like a bit romanticized. Like just because union workers are like striking, that's great. Doesn't mean that they have progressive values. I mean, they were still like uh, really anti, uh, like xenophobic, like like uh, on the picket lines, really saying like language that was like really problematic against people of color who, who were crossing the picket lines. And it was really, um, upsetting for the members. And so one of the things I started to see, and even, and I'll say this too, there was three women who had high risk pregnancies and they decided to walk the line. But what I kept asking for is like, can we find things for these people like Jehovah's Witnesses, high risk pregnancy? Like they can't just be out, like Jehovah's Witnesses, they can't do political demonstrations. And so they couldn't be on the picket line, but wanted to support. And I was trying to like accommodate all these different types of situations. And I found that like, the structures that were in place were so, that were not flexible, are able to like bend to like accommodate. It was kind of just like, you're a scab or you're not a scab. And that was it. And even to the point, um, you know, where they're like, oh, they're not even that pregnant. Like they could walk around, you know, so, um, so it was really hard for me uh, to try to like answer to that and be, you know, be the person that was like facilitating. Uh, and I was really disappointed with the lack of flexibility, like I said, with the union. Ultimately, the company, after maybe three weeks, turned, uh, threatened and said, at the end of the month, we're going to turn off your benefits. So what that means, they're going to take away our employer health insurance. For those women who were high risk, that was a huge issue for them. And I feel like you know, they ultimately decided to cross back and go back into the store. And when they made that decision, I knew that it was a hard decision for them. Um, and I was disappointed, but I couldn't really be mad because I'm saying like, it is scary to have kids and to be, you know, pregnant and like have your benefits taken away. And the union's standpoint on it was like, they're scabs, you know, now we're gonna curse them out and yell at them and follow them to their car. And I was just really disappointed like with the way that they handled that situation. Um, in general. So one of the things that I started to do was to say, okay, listen. Oh, and then the other dynamic is that like, you know, like I said, these are like old, the old boys club. It's the old boys club outside of these picket lines, people in the chairs and it's nice. I mean like whatever, but like it could be really alienating for young workers, like or like weird for young workers to find like their space in that, right? Um, especially if they're not being welcomed in. And so they're out there, but they don't really feel like they're part of that culture. They feel, you know, kind of like they're on the outside, and it was really hard for them to stay strong. So one of the things I started doing was doing this solidarity van where I just pick everybody up and we'd like go to Harlem or go like somewhere into a picket line together. And like I, ha I had to find a way for us to stick together, um, to go through this experience together because um, otherwise we were just gonna lose people. You know, people were just gonna drop like flies. Um, so we did that and the strike lasted for 49 days. Um, I would say something just about bargaining really quick. So we bargained all the whole time through as a team, collectively. 
until the final hour, which I think is something that labor gets wrong, which is then in the final hour when it's time to get an agreement, they lock out the workers and say, you're not welcome to this bargaining session. And we were at the, they were in the labor secretary's office in DC, and this is like some of the dynamics that I'm talking about racially, where it's like all of a sudden we're not qualified to be in like the big boys meeting, right? Like they're gonna make decisions. We don't know what's on the table. We don't know what's being discussed, but they're gonna make the decision for us and it's for our best interest. Um, so that's what happened. And I, I think that like my coworkers were like calling me whenever there was a, you know, we have an agreement. What's the agreement? You're on the team. I don't know the agreement. I wasn't in the room. I don't, I have no idea what's going on. And that also like, uh, you know, did more for folks to distrust, like to breed the distrust with the union as well. And people were really upset um, because it wouldn't have been something that they felt like they, that was worth striking 49 days for, but also it's not, you know, quite like the language or like the agreement that they would have, you know, had for themselves. So I would just say that, like, I think that you interunion democracy is like really important. Transparency is really important. Um, and there have been times where I've built to strikes or built with new units that I feel like, you know, that them being a part of the process from the very beginning and being able to drive that really makes a difference. So. Valeria Chavez is the director of the Labor Innovations for the 21st Century Fund, or LIFT. It's a coalition of labor unions, foundations, worker centers, and academia focused on supporting experimental approaches to labor organizing. She was formerly head of the Queens-based worker center, New Immigrant Community Empowerment. Bianca did a fabulous job, like sort of taking you through what happens as you organize a labor union and the ups and downs of that and, and like the ups and downs of the final product that you do end up with sort of like an agreement with your employer that's enforceable, right? And your rights are based on that agreement. Now, and that's protected through a legal structure of the National Labor Relations Board, which is really antiquated and needs to be changed and all that, but it is sort of enforceable agreement. There are many people in many places that aren't able to organize into these kinds of bargaining units, right? And that's increasingly becoming more and more so as the economy continues to fissure, right? Meaning that you kind of like, there's a very long, a lot of steps between you and your employer, right? As we get more tech, like more gig workers and, and all of that. So this is a space where I think worker centers have really done a fabulous job of um, sort of catching the rest of the workers and need to be supported and expanded, right? So a worker center will traditionally work on, in organized worker centers that are outside of workplaces that can be organized through a contract and push the conditions to raise standards, right? So it's really interesting how Casey introduced the fact that they do workforce development for um, nannies while also looking at what enforceable standards, and, and this is policy work, right, to, to raise the floor. Um, I think for me, having organized day laborers for a long time and, and, and um, having worked in New York City before I moved to Washington, um, <laughs> before I moved to Washington, is that there was a lot of talk about sort of pulling people up and sort of this economic ladder, but not enough talk, um, I would say, from like the institutions about like government institutions about building power for that base, right? And I think this is what worker centers and unions do, is that they show that you don't just crawl a few people up. You lift the standards and that every job needs to be made into a good job, right? So I like I think you guys said how can we like reimagine organized labor and how can we think about how labor issues are showing up for all of you in this room? And I would really question this idea of like 
walking people through economic mobility to building worker power so that we can get high standards. It's not necessarily, in my opinion, about putting people into good jobs. It's about making every single job out there into a good job. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, organizing and building worker power is what creates that, right? Um, so this is what worker centers do, right? They're trying to get the bottom feeders. Um, so worker centers traditionally are organizing day laborers, domestic workers, car wash workers, food manufacturing workers. People sort of in these very low standards, they have depth in terms of uh, industry knowledge. Nobody knows the, man the food manufacturing sector like brand workers, really, absolutely nobody. Even if you have a giant union with a lot of research capacity, nobody knows taxi work like IRB and like her colleagues, right? Um, so it's sort of this deep industry standard, trying to get the bottom feeders up in the industry level stuff. Also, there's been a lot of work, especially in recent years, around enforcement of basic labor laws, mm -hmm. right? So making sure that people are getting paid, that you get back wages for folks if, if, if they haven't been paid, which is very often, um, and also try, tying the skills building to the enforcement. So that's one point that I want to make, and this is kind of like what the worker, what the Lift Fund does, is that we want to experiment with new forms of worker organizing, right? So we support partnerships between worker centers and traditional labor to spark some of these issues that may be in traditional labor with the infusion of leadership, often of people of color, that come through, through the worker centers. Oh, there was a, another point I wanted to make around um, technology. I think Byerby already kind of made this, but it, it's not about sort of meeting the tech needs of the future. It's about holding tech and corporations accountable so that we can have the accountability relationships, whether that's through policy standards or it's through a, a contract. Technology doesn't have to mean that we are, are not going to have to suffer to sort of meet these needs, right? We're working on a project where we're kind of documenting the ways in which worker centers are using and, and labor unions are using technology to organize and to bring standards up. And that was Bayravi Desai, Bianca Cunningham, and Valeria Treves giving a talk at the Sterling Foundation on the future of work and the future of labor. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. So for ARG this week, I'm talking about a piece by friend of the show and previous ARG recipient, Alyssa Battistoni, who has a really great piece about what else? Organizing. It's in the new issue of N Plus One, and it's called Spade Work, after Ella Baker's saying. We talk a lot about organizing here on Belabored, but it's rare to find someone writing about what exactly the day-to-day -day process is like, why people do it, what it teaches us about the world and about ourselves. So to find a piece like this that is humble and self-aware and honest and still makes organizing sound beautiful, because it is, is, well, it's rare. It's also worth reading right now because the piece turns on the NLRB's decision to let graduate workers at private universities like Yale organize, a decision that we heard this week is probably about to be overturned by the Trump National Labor Relations Board. This is, of course, entirely expected, but still a reminder, as Alyssa's piece also reminds us, that the success of unions can't hinge on a legal decision or a government body. 
I want to read it all to you, but that would take a while, so I will resist. Instead, I'm just going to read you a few snippets and then make you go all read it yourself. Starting here. Alyssa writes, quote, But it wasn't until I got to graduate school at Yale, where a campaign for union recognition had been going on for nearly three decades, that I learned to do the thing I'd by then been advocating for years. By the time I started organizing so much that it felt like a full-time job, it was the spring of 2016, and I had plenty of company. Around the country, there were high-profile efforts to organize magazines, fast food places, and nursing homes. Erstwhile, occupiers became involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign and joined the exploding Democratic Socialists of America, whose members received shabby business cards proclaiming them an official socialist organizer. Today's organizers, not activists, thank you, make clear that they are not black bloc participants brawling with police or hippies plotting a love-in. They are inspired by a tradition of professional revolutionaries, by Lenin's exhortation that unless the masses are organized, the proletariat is nothing. Organized, it is everything. Organizing, in other words, is unembarrassed about power. It recognizes that to wield it, you need to persuade untold numbers of people to join a cause and to begin organizing themselves. Organizing means being in it to win, end quote. Organizing is about power. That's a cliche, of course. We say it so often it loses its meaning. Organizing is about the collective. We know that, too. But what does that really mean in terms of our lives? What does it mean in terms of changing the world? When we tell ourselves we're too busy for the work, what does that mean? Alyssa writes, quote, We were all too busy, but the too busyness wasn't really about time, or at least not only. Being too busy meant people didn't see why the union was worth making time for. Your job as an organizer was to find out what it was that people wanted to be different in their lives, and then to persuade people that it mattered whether they decided to do something about it. This is not the same thing as persuading people that the thing itself matters. They usually know it does. The task is to persuade people that they matter. They know they usually don't. She further notes, quote, To soften the ask seems compassionate, but like any other protective measure, it condescends, and like any other shortcut, it makes things harder in the long run. End quote. This line stopped me short more than perhaps any other in this long and well-written piece, because it feels like a lesson that even the labor movement has forgotten in abandoning trust in the workers to make their union, in trying to do the work for them, in assuming that what Jane McAlevey calls shortcuts can get around this difficulty. Alyssa notes, quote, The relationality of organizing is maybe the hardest thing to understand before you've done it. But it is the most important. This is not because people are governed by emotions instead of reason, though they sometimes are. It's because the entire problem of collective action is that it's rational to act collectively where it's not to act alone. And you build the collective piece by piece. And then on day one of the union vote, she writes... Quote, it was a strange feeling, after a life spent chasing individual achievement, to want something that I could only have if other people wanted it too. End quote. It is easy, I think, to give up. It certainly can be for me. And to retreat into a space of things you can have if you work hard by yourself. As Alyssa writes early on in the piece, leaning on Antonio Gramsci and Stuart Hall, the thing about the hegemony of Thatcherism, Reaganism, of neoliberalism, is that we're all created in this world that we want to change. And so we're used to be being told that no one can do it for us, that we have to do things ourselves. The real challenge of organizing is that it twists this. You do have to do the work yourself, but you have to be able to do that alongside and with others, and that it is worth it to do that, even if you lose the battle. 
You have to figure out how to put all that work into building space with other people in order to see that change is possible. The thing that hinders change, as she writes, isn't usually that people don't think the change matters. They think it's impossible to make. The reason we need to talk about how it is done is precisely to show people that it is possible, and that even after a loss, it remains possible to remake the world. And my pick for ARG is called, I Have to Treat Patients Like Objects, The Harsh Reality of Working in Dementia Care. It's by Anonymous in The Guardian. Anonymous writes about the hidden world of dementia care in a way that is both profoundly empathetic and disturbingly blunt. We often talk about caregivers either as living saints or as dutiful family members, and often we don't talk about them at all. But very seldom do we articulate their plight as individuals with their own subjective, often ambivalent feelings about the people they care for. The piece, which centers on the perspective of a staffer at a senior residential home in Australia, elucidates the uncomfortable truth about how we outsource the hardest forms of care work, caring for the people who are close to us but can't live with us, people who often do not outwardly display appreciation or even acknowledgement for the care that they receive, not because they don't care about the people taking care of them, but because their ability to express themselves generally is compromised by a debilitating medical condition. In this case, it's dementia. The caregiver describes the struggle as a constant, often terrifying challenge, but also an experience is even more acutely painful for the clients themselves. Anonymous writes, quote, we are subjected every day to tasks that pose a threat to our backs, knees, and shoulders. There is also the risk of injury of abuse coming from dementia residents. Some of them can be very aggressive and staff need proper training in order to deal with them appropriately. Newer, inexperienced workers are just not provided with that level of training. Some patients are so aggressive that we can be in life-threatening situations. We are dealing with the hitting and pushing of other residents and staff and furniture being destroyed. I was once caring for a dementia resident and he suddenly pushed me and I fell and injured my knee. This happened four years ago and I'm still in the process of recovering from that. Not just from the pain of my knee, but also from the fear that it might happen again." Not only does this vivid depiction reveal the often overlooked phenomenon of violence against workers in care homes, but it also underscores the link between the emotional experience of care work and the very real physical hardships workers endure every day. The narrative deepens the conversation that has come out of Australia's Aged Care Commission, which has been investigating the often harsh conditions in senior homes across the country. For the workers, it's a different side of the same story. The work is exhausting, psychologically and physically, and because their role is that of the care provider, there's scant relief for them when they themselves need help coping. Their chief task, in many ways, is complete subordination of their own needs to those of their clients. But Anonymous shows that this constant pressure takes a toll not only on the workers, but also those who receive care as well. And they, in fact, are the most vulnerable when the system breaks down. Anonymous writes, quote, Under our funding and management models, they are seen as a task, not as a person. There are times when dementia residents are not treated as human beings with feelings and emotions. The day starts in a cloud of rushing that never stops. Unless we are able to provide additional staff, their quality of care and their quality of life will stay like this until they die, unquote. The caregiver also notes that the manager at this person's facility actually had to leave the job because she couldn't cope with the stress. 
Now imagine being a low-wage frontline care worker in that same residential facility who lacks the resources and the job options to make the same choice of resigning from their position. Although the authors in Australia, senior care in the U.S. shares the same dilemmas of ethics, economic equity, and labor rights, and we've talked about that many times on Belabored, many care workers, especially those employed in private homes, are immigrant women of color, and they are denied the basic labor rights afforded to regular workers, including wage and hour regulations and health care. Despite all that they are deprived of, the one thing they have in abundance is resilience, which often gives them endless patience and a striking ability to endure unimaginable hardships. And for this, their employers often award them with words of praise and little else. In the worst cases, their resilience and compassion is completely taken advantage of, often out of ignorance on the part of the family that employs them, perhaps, or in some cases out of deliberate exploitation, often on the part of corrupt, profiteering senior service providers. The anonymous author, whose very byline reflects both the humility and the fear that they bring to their workplace every day, brings the story back, as always, to the client. Their care is a job for the workers, but it's everyday life for the senior who is fed, bathed, and protected by the caregiver at the most vulnerable period of their adult lives. Anonymous writes, quote, For our residents, their home is the aged care facility, and those that care for them are viewed as their own family. If those that they regard as family cannot even show them the patience, understanding, kindness that they deserve throughout the day, not because they don't want to, but because they simply cannot, how empty their lives must be. For the worker, work is work and family is family. But in a residential care facility, people who are extremely vulnerable often find themselves stuck somewhere between those two worlds, and so do the workers. We all have a duty to maintain the dignity of the lives of our elders, even if their minds are not in a state to appreciate that effort. But do we also appreciate the person who makes this possible, the person who, unlike their clients, is well aware of how they are treated by society? even if they're not able to express what they're feeling because their job requires their silence. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks also to Natasha for making us sound good, as always. You can catch us in another two weeks, and in the meantime, you can get in touch with us at hashtag Belabored on Twitter, or you can write to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Check out all of our archives also at DescentMagazine.org and send us some story ideas. Send us some gripes. Talk about what's going on with your union. Talk about what's going on with the union that you don't have yet but are trying to organize over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.